Okay, can we start, please? Thank you very much. My name is Mike Savage. I'm Professor of Sociology and Director of the International Inequality Institute. And welcome to the Sociology Sensation Book of 2019, judging by the attendance here and the interest on Twitter and in the media. And I think we do have quite a, quite a remarkable book. So I have to say at the beginning, I'm really thrilled to be here because Daniel and Sam are two colleagues who I've worked with for a number of years, and I've seen their work as it's, as it's been taking shape and as it's taken place in this book. And it's fantastic to see sociology having such big impact in such a high-quality way. So let me say a bit about um, the plan, uh, and then I'll, without any further ado, I'll, I'll pass on to Daniel and Sam to talk about the book. So, um, uh, well, firstly, let me introduce the speakers, so you all know who is who. So um, Daniel Lorison is first. Daniel Lorison used to be a postdoc in the Department of Sociology here at the LSE for three years, working with me and Sam and others on the Great British Class Survey. Um, two years ago, two and a half years ago, he left to become assistant professor at Swarthmore College in the United States, uh, but has been an active collaborator, obviously, in developing this work. And as well as his work on social mobility, he has interest in social class and also in political participation in the U.S., uh, Sam Friedman is Associate Professor of Sociology at the LSE. He's worked at the LSE for, um, I think, five years now, previously worked at City University and University of York. Um, he is an expert on cultural sociology, has written a previous book on the uh, nature of comedy and stand-up comedy and the way it embodies forms of, distinct, of distinction before getting into the social mobility game. Um, and... I'm very proud to say he is the only academic social scientist who is currently a social mobility commissioner. So as well as high-quality academic work, he's also involved in the policy interface. And then uh, Faiza Shaheen is director of the class think tank, which is supported and resourced by the Labour movement. She's also currently a, candidate, a Labour Party candidate in the Chingford seat and will be standing against um, Ian Duncan Smith at the next election. <laughs> So uh, we'll be interested to see how reflections on, upon how this work will be, will be received in the uh, streets of Chingford. Um, might be received on the streets of Chingford. Uh, Louise Archer is currently a senior lecturer in organisational studies at Royal Holloway, University, University of London. She has written about social mobility over many, um, many years, and in some respects her research is a kind of precursor to that which Sam and Daniel will be talking about today. Amongst her most important work is um, uh, reports for the Social Mobility Commission on access into elite professions, law, accounting, and banking. Um, unfortunately, um, Kelly Webb-Lamb, who was going to be uh, from Channel 4 uh, and, and responding to, this, to the book, is unwell, so she can't be, can't be here today. So it's a fantastic panel. The plan will be for uh, Daniel to start off and then Sam to take over speak for about 30-35 minutes, introducing the theme of the book. Then Faiza and Louise will each have five minutes. I'll say a few words, uh, perhaps two, and ask Daniel and Sam to respond. Then we'll have half an hour or so for questions from the floor. Okay, so no, no further ado, let me pass on to Daniel. So, um, can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Um, so uh, thank you, Mike, for introducing us. Thank you, all of you, for coming to hear us talk about our book. This is kind of unbelievable um, that there's this many people here for an academic talk. Um, so I'm going to tell you sort of what, uh, you know, this, this is a result of uh, 
about four years of collaboration between me and Sam uh, that started when I was over here. Um, and so my job is to sort of take you through the first part of what we think our main findings are and sort of what we think the meaning is of some of what we have to say. Um, so for some broad context first, you know, politicians love to talk about social mobility. They love to talk about the importance of equality of opportunity, um, that we won't entrench the advantages of the fortunate few, um, that everybody, regardless of your background, should be able to get as far as your talents can take you, right? That's Theresa May in her first speech as prime minister. This is something that most politicians have said something like this at some point. Um, and it's a lovely goal, uh, but it raises a lot of really important questions, I think, about what we mean by talent, right? Are, is everybody's talent equally recognizable? How do we judge talent or merit or hard work or skill or intelligence? Can we really separate those things from the advantages or disadvantages that we have that come from our class background? And that's essentially what this book is about. So in order to talk about how do we understand the effects of class background, how black background matters, we have to have a way to talk about class origin. Um, and there are nearly as many ways to talk about class origin as there are academics who study class origin. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of debates. It's quite complicated. Um, we've picked a fairly standard um, approach to talking about class origin. It's not necessarily the one we think is best for all purposes, but it works really well for this book. Um, and that's to use the Office of National Statistics, the ONS, um, NSSEC, the National Statistics Socioeconomic Classification. I had to learn that when I first got here. It was hard, um, but now I know it. Um, and that generally has eight categories. We've simplified it to three. We've color-coded them throughout the book and throughout the presentation so you can keep track. Um, and those are basically in teal, professional managerial origins, um, you know, things we might call upper middle class or, or middle class origins, people whose parents did jobs like CEO, like professor, um, like teacher or journalist, right? Um, so that's one class origin we're going to talk about. We'll often call that privileged origins as well. Right? Um, we'll also use uh, intermediate origins. Those are jobs in the middle. Um, you might call them lower middle class, people whose parents were bookkeepers or secretaries, uh, plumbers, chefs, electricians, and so on. And then people from what we'll call working class origins and also from families where there wasn't work, um, people whose parents did things like factory worker, cleaner, a retail assistant, et cetera. Right? So that's sort of the working definition of class for uh, when we're talking about class origins here. Good so far? Okay, great. All right. Um, so the overall picture of class mobility, um, we start with origins on, yes, your left, um, and destinations on the, your right. Um, and what you can see is despite all the talk about equality of opportunity, there's a fair amount of class reproduction in the UK. Um, this is based on over 100,000 respondents to the labor force survey. Um, we've coded them to their uh, parents, the kind of work their parents did, just like I just showed you. Um, and then we're looking at their flows uh, from the left to right to where, they, where folks have ended up. Um, well, what you can see is that the thickest line, the biggest portion of every class destination is people who come from essentially that same class origin. Right? That's that thick 15% line on the bottom there, for example. It's people who had working class parents and currently have working class jobs. Um, so that's the overall picture of class 
uh, reproduction and class mobility in the UK. That's something that lots of other sociologists could tell you. Um, their pictures aren't as pretty. Their numbers are not as big. But they could basically tell you the same thing. Um, what we're doing is really focusing on people who get into what we're calling sort of top jobs or elite occupations. Um, that's where we have something to add, we think. And so we mean two sets of things by elite destinations here. Um, we, one of them, you know, broadly, these are the most desirable um, for many people, uh, most prestigious, often highest paid, um, often most influential, most likely to have control over, over other people's day-to-day -day lives, these kinds of jobs. Um, one category is just that category from the NSSEC that I just showed you, CEOs, professors, etc. But we also include cultural and creative workers. Um, and that's because people who work in television, people who decide what goes in the news, uh, people who make our movies and our art have a big influence on how we understand ourselves. Plus, lots of people want to be artists and actors and so on and so forth. So we thought they fit as sort of elite occupations or top jobs. So we include both of those in our elite destinations. And then we had three questions we wanted to explore about this set of people and about people who are socially mobile into these top jobs. So the first was just what's the relative social exclusivity of different high status professions in the UK, right? Um, I'm a professor, my brother-in-law is a vice president of a big bank. Those are really different jobs in lots of ways, um, but they get grouped together. So do those look the same in terms of who has access to them? All right, that's the first question. The second question is, do the upwardly mobile face of class pay gap? We wouldn't have had a book if the answer weren't yes. Um, so you don't need me to tell you much about that, but I'll show you what our results are. Um, and then the really interesting question uh, for us is why, and that's what, about, uh, what a big portion of the book is about. Um, so the answer to that first question is what's the relative exclusivity of different parts of the top of the UK class structure? Um, all the way on the, my left, your right, you can see the distribution of class origins in the whole workforce. Uh, it's about a third, a third, a third, right? Um, but in top jobs overall, in this whole collection, about 50% of people come from privileged origins. Right? Um, but when you look across all these different categories of kinds of top jobs, you can see there's real differences. Um, doctors, about 75% of doctors um, come from privileged origins, and only about 7% of doctors come from working class backgrounds. Part of that is, in fact, that the children of doctors are 24 times as likely to be doctors themselves as the, anybody else's children, or everybody else's children. Right? Um, you can see also that some parts of the top are much more accessible. Engineering, um, people who are chiefs of police and fire and ambulance companies are much more likely to be working class than these top jobs overall. So that's the first piece. There's more on that in the book, but we'll leave it there for now. The second piece is this class origin pay gap. Um, what you can see there, um, some of you might not be able to see the small font in the back, sorry. Um, but what you could broadly see is that um, people from professional or managerial origins in these top jobs are making about £47,000 a year on average. Um, on average, people from working class origins in these top jobs are making a little under £41,000 a year. Um, so the difference is close to £6,400. That's a lot of money, right? 
um, you know, sort of thinking about my, my pay and my income and, and you know, an extra 6,400 pounds a year is something you'd really notice, right? Even if you're sort of towards the top of the income distribution. Um, for, if anybody's American, that's about $8,400. Um, helps me. All right. Um, so if you've, uh, you know, if you've paid attention to any research on inequality basically ever, you've heard the term glass ceiling. And we're drawing on that in this research. Um, and for us, the point of the class pay gap is not to say that other kinds of inequality are less important or we shouldn't look at them. In fact, I think they're equally as important. And one of the things we try to do in the book is to pay attention to the interactions between different forms of inequality. Um, so what we can see here is that we, when we look at class and gender together, um, there's a double disadvantage for working class origin women. Right? That's those, the purple bar up there. Um, they're earning about 7,500 pounds a year less on average than privileged origin women, um, who in turn are earning about 11,000 pounds less a year on average than privileged origin men. Um, so taken together, there's nearly a 19,000 pound pay gap between working class origin women and privileged origin men in these top jobs. We also draw really heavily from work on racial ethnic pay gaps. Um, so one of the, uh, one early work on this was a woman named Sharon Collins who wrote about the experiences of black corporate executives um, and the barriers and uh, disadvantages they faced in their jobs. Um, and so, and that's actually one of the reasons we thought we might see a class origin effect in top jobs in the UK was, was looking at that earlier work. Um, so here we're looking at the double disadvantages faced by many members of uh, many racial ethnic groups. And the, uh, there's two things I want to point out here. One is that um, within every racial ethnic group that we look at, there's some amount of a class pay gap, right? And the other is for many racial ethnic groups in the UK, there's a double disadvantage, right? The working class origin, uh, for example, uh, black or black African or Caribbean or black British folks are earning substantially less than the white uh, British folks from working class origins and less than the white British folks from privileged origins. Right? So there's double disadvantages there. Um, we also, if you're, if you're a certain kind of analytic, you're starting to think, well, maybe some of this is who's in what kinds of jobs or different, you know, finance pays more than being a professor. Um, Daniel's brother-in-law probably makes a lot more than he does, um, and he does. Uh, <laughs> so maybe it's about sort of where people are. Um, so we looked within a lot of these particular occupations or types of jobs, and there's class pay gaps within most of these jobs as well, or many of them. Um, the biggest one is in finance, which is also where people are earning the most. Um, but there are class, substantial class pay gaps across a lot of the fields we looked at. Right? And then if you're a certain kind of analytic or, or you've taken a quantitative methods class, then you're starting to think, well, there's a lot of things going on here. Um, aren't they going to control for something? Why are we just looking at all these raw averages? Right? Um, and so the next thing that we did is we took into account all the ways that working class origin people are different in their attributes that might relate to pay than privileged origin people. Right? Um, and so there's lots of things that are different. Um, you might think one thing that's going on is that maybe working class origin people in these top jobs, they got there later. Maybe they've had less time in their careers and so they're just earning less because they're not as far along. Right? Um, so we control for age, we control for time that people have worked at the place they work. 
gender, health, disability status, um, the kind of firm people work at, the particular job they're in. And some of that does explain the gap. Working class origin people are less likely to have as much education as privileged origin people um, or to have gone to as selective or prestigious uh, universities. Um, when you go get more education and go to a more prestigious university, you tend to earn more. Um, working class people are also less likely to work in London, where the rate salaries are higher. Um, they tend to work in smaller firms. And all of that taken together does explain some of the pay gap. When we put everything into the computer and tell it to run a regression, uh, what we get is about half of the pay gap that we found is explained. There's a, after all of that, there's about a 3,000 and some pound difference between working origin, class origin people who are similar in every way we can measure to privileged origin people. So net of all controls, there's still about a 7% pay gap or about 3,000 pounds. Um, but we couldn't get any further with the quantitative data than throwing everything we could find at it. Um, and so Sam is going to talk to you about what we did next. Okay, so, so the question then is why, right? Um, if the UK's most uh, extensive employment data set um, can only offer partial explanations, what else might be driving this class pay gap? Getting at this, this sort of black box of explanation is really what we've been devoted to over the last couple of years. Uh, and something that we felt, I suppose, required going beyond sort of large-scale uh, survey data. So we brokered access to a number of elite firms. We went behind the closed doors of a large multinational accountancy firm, uh, a successful architecture practice, um, and also one of Britain's biggest television channels. We also wanted to look at life outside of firms, so we spoke to self-employed actors. Now, these case studies involved a huge amount of fieldwork, including some observation of interviews, of promotion panels, but pivoted mainly around 175 in-depth interviews uh, conducted with employees from a range of different backgrounds in a range of different grades. In each case, though, uh, the fieldwork began with a kind of X-ray of each firm, examining the class composition of uh, staff. And this was actually really highly revealing. It showed us that the class pay gap is less an issue of equal pay for equal work and more about what we might call the sorting of the socially mobile, horizontally into less prestigious departments and vertically into lower tiers or positions. Now, just to give you uh, one example of this, this is our TV channel, uh, who I can actually name here because bravely and I think uh, encouragingly, uh, very encouragingly, they recently went public uh, with our research. Uh, and it's a shame Kelly's not here because she would have, I think, spoken to this um, very articulately and, and critically. But you can see very clearly here that there is a quite acute class ceiling at Channel 4. Those from working class backgrounds are not only hugely uh, underrepresented in the first place, but they also drop off quite strongly as you look upwards towards the top ranks. And one of the things that's driving this is actually departmental sorting or segregation uh, within the channel. So you can see here that by far the most exclusive area is commissioning, okay? Not only the creative hub of the channel, not only the most prestigious area probably within the channel, but also uh, the department that holds the most senior uh, management posts. And I should say we, we saw very similar trends actually at the accountancy firm, both in terms of a class ceiling at the top, 
but also departmentally. And there it was the advisory section of the business. Again, by far the most prestigious and high paying and also the most exclusive in class terms. So how do we account for these kinds of filtering or sealing effects? We don't have time to go through sort of this in detail. It's really what most of the book is devoted to looking at. But what I want to do is just pull out briefly four drivers um, that emerged across the case studies uh, and which we explore in detail. What I want to try and do uh, is narrate these drivers, actually, just through the lens of one interviewee in particular. This interviewee was Mark. Mark was a senior commissioner at Channel 4. He was from a very privileged background. His parents were successful professionals. He was educated at one of the country's top private schools uh, and then went on to Oxford. Although I should make clear, Mark is not his real name, of course, and like all our interviewees, um, some details about him have been altered to ensure not anonymity. Now, Mark undoubtedly has one of the most coveted jobs in television. He controls a budget extending to uh, the millions, and every day a stream of young uh, independent television producers uh, arrive at his desk, desperate to land a pitch. At 39, he is young to wield such power. Okay? Certainly he's enjoyed a swift ascension. After making his name as a program maker, Mark initially became a commissioner at a rival broadcaster before being headhunted some five years ago. A string of hits later, Mark is now one of the big players at the channel. But when we meet Mark on the top of Channel 4's futuristic aluminium and glass-clad headquarters and invite him to narrate his career in his own words, a very different account emerges. He acknowledges, of course, that he has certain objective merits, prestigious educational credentials, a strong work ethic, even certain skills, an eye for talent, he says, or a knack for what he calls idea generation. But the most crucial thing he tells us was that his talents were given a platform. Okay, a chance to develop, as he puts it, or later an opportunity to shine. And central in actually supplying this platform, he says, <laughs> were his parents, right? Who for over five years provided a safety net, a financial safety net that tidied him over while he was jockeying around for a first permanent job in television production. Indeed, this kind of early career investment from the bank of mum and dad was echoed across our interviews particularly among those in the culture and creative industries, and particularly among those from privileged backgrounds. This kind of financial cushion, we found, acted as this crucial layer of insulation from the uncertainty associated with forging a career, both in terms of negotiating the cost of living in London, okay, where most of the best opportunities are clustered in really most of our elite occupations, but also more psychologically, in terms of engendering a sense that one can take more risks spend more time on networking, take more uncertain or short-term roles, all of which may have longer-term payoffs for one's career. In contrast, those who lacked family money described the day-to-day -day reality of making a living in these kind of areas as a kind of economic chaos, right? As actor Ray aptly put here, like skydiving without a parachute. And more broadly, what we found was that in the face of this economic uncertainty, many from working-class backgrounds had decided to filter out of the most competitive or the most prestigious routes in their profession, the creative route in television, advisory in accountancy. And they'd chosen more stable but much less sort of uh, lucrative parts of their industry. But it's not just about money. 
more significant for Mark's accelerated trajectory, for example, were a handful of senior colleagues. Senior colleagues who he explained had taken him under their wing and often operating, and this is crucial, beneath formal mechanisms had fast-tracked his career, facilitating jobs, advocating on his behalf. He told us here, it's interesting, I mean, I could almost give you my whole trajectory in sponsors, because it's, sort of, it's quite medieval in television. You serve apprenticeships, you have a patron. This type of sponsorship was actually particularly common in the accountancy firm, where most partners that we spoke to talked openly about this idea of bringing through the next generation of partners. And while this was largely presented as a sort of innocent process of talent spotting, what we found was that sponsorship, sponsorship relationships were actually very rarely established in the first instance on the basis of work performance. Instead, they were almost always forged in their genesis on a sort of sense of cultural affinity. Okay? As this quote from one partner, I think, shows, who somebody feels familiar with, who they recognise, who they feel comfortable with. And I think the point here is that as senior, management, senior managers themselves <clears throat> are, them, are overwhelmingly from privileged backgrounds, as you saw at Channel 4, but the same in the accountancy firm, this type of sponsorship in one's own image then acts as another sort of form of advantage for the already privileged. <coughs> Back to Mark. Perhaps most pivotal to his ascent, he went on to tell us, was an ability to, in his words, fit in with the Telly tribe. This meant things like dress, he said, and promptly pointed to his pristine white and expensive-looking trainers. I don't know why I wear these, he said. I suppose it's a uniform, isn't it? Like a businessman wears a suit. But questions of fit were even more powerful, he said, as he entered the upper echelons of television commissioning. Vital here, he noted, was a sense of how to perform in certain work environments, particularly in the kind of collaborative and creative decision-making meetings that common to television. And here Mark made an explicit link between he, what he called the rules of the game and the specificities of his class background. Let me give you an example, he said, recalling a period on the senior production team of a news programme. So every day we had this morning meeting where we decided what stories to do and everyone pitched in on what our angle should be. And it was instantly recognisable to me, exactly like the common rooms I encountered at Oxford and at school. The rules were, it's good to be right, but it's better to be funny. Now these curious and fairly opaque behavioural codes were actually reiterated across our interviews at Channel 4, constituting a sense of what we call in the book, studied informality. Okay? And there were two key dimensions of this. First, there was a sense that this was about a particular package of self-presentation, an RP accent, casual but hip dress. It wasn't only Mark. There was a lot of discussion about the right kind of trainers. Uh, knowing, often ironic humour. Who knows when to swear in meetings? Who knows when to put their feet up? And a level of interpersonal familiarity, hugs and kisses rather than handshakes, that we don't normally associate with the professional workplace. Second, it also involved a particular intellectual or highbrow way of talking about television, particularly in commissioning, right? A sense of when to drop cultural references from other high art forms or speak in a sort of arcane or lyrical tone, even when many, like this interviewee, told us that it was actually often quite irrelevant to the kinds of mainstream programmes being made. 
Okay, why are we talking, she says here, about the great American novel in relation to a program about lie detectors? <laughs> and unsurprisingly, it was those from working class backgrounds who found these codes particularly alienating, intimidating, who struggled to master studied informality, who, in the words of Claire here, feel like they're imposters, like everyone knows each other intimately, even when in reality they don't. Now, these kind of behavioural codes may seem superficial, but we would argue, and we do across two chapters, that they're in many ways the single most important driver of the class ceiling. Why? Well, we often think about merit as having a sort of fixed nature, that most indicators are objectively measurable and equally recognised by all. But a key theme, I think, running through our book is that supposedly objective measures of merit are often actually received assessed and valued very differently according to how they're performed. Some performances fit, in other words, and others do not. And in many professions, this is about the historical legacy of an overwhelmingly privileged white male um, um, sort of mass within that profession. Those who have been able to embed, even institutionalise, their own ideas about the right way to work, about the right way to be in the workplace, their own behavioural codes that in turn continue to shape perceptions of who is appropriate to promote and progress. And what we found is that this is largely expressed as a sort of gut feeling, an intuitive sense, as one Turner-Clark uh, partner put it to us, that some people simply feel like a partner. Our book is peppered with these sorts of um, looking-glass versions of merit whether this is studied informality in television, corporate polish in accountancy, or the enduring power of sort of RP pronunciation in the acting profession. And while different in important ways, they all pivot on a particular package of self-presentation relating to dress, accent, taste, language, etiquette, that are strongly associated, we would argue, with a privileged upbringing, what the social theorist Pierre Bourdieu calls embodied cultural capital. And while some may argue like the columnist Claire Fogues writing about our book in today's times, that these behavioural codes are actually somehow intrinsically desirable, that those from working class uh, groups should emulate them, that they just need to, and I quote from her here, speak properly, clearly and crisply. <laughs> I think we would counter strongly that actually in most cases these behavioural codes are actually fairly arbitrary. They certainly can't be reliably pegged to any credible measure of work performance, ability or intelligence. And further, I think what we try to show in the book is that they tend to be important in certain elite work environments. Particularly in the book, we look at commissioning and we also look at advisory, where performance, we argue, is especially hard to evaluate, where notions of merit are particularly uncertain or contestable. In these environments, the success of the final product, whether financial advice or a television programme, is very hard to foretell. And therefore, the knowledge and the expertise of the professional is sort of inherently ambiguous. Presenting or performing the right image, then, when advising a client or pitching a television idea, becomes integral to the act of persuasion, a proxy for a competence that can't be definitively demonstrated in the moment. Thus far, we've interrogated various barriers that hold the upwardly mobile back. But what about the actions, decisions, aspirations of the mobile themselves? 
Notably, we did find some evidence that some had not pushed forward in their careers in ways that you might expect, considering their experience, considering their uh, performance, considering their skills. But we would strongly challenge the idea, popular in policy discussions, I think, still, that this points towards intrinsic class differences in confidence, in aspiration or character. Instead, what we would argue is that the awkwardly mobile often commit acts of self-elimination and often in anticipation of the kind of barriers we've already outlined. Now, this manifested in various ways, but one theme that came up with many who had actually done very well was that once in executive settings, they found themselves unwilling or unable to play by the rules, to push for the very top. And Bill, a a commissioner at Channel 4, provided a tele-example here. He explained that as his career developed, and particularly in the pursuit of being a commissioner, he had engaged in a fairly intricate process of cultural mimicry, of changing his accent, of never talking about his background, of generally imitating the highbrow culture I outlined earlier. But as he explains in this lucid quote, reaching the very top in TV is often contingent on assimilation, not just in one's professional life, but also in their personal life, of fully embracing the sort of clubbable aspects of the profession. But for Bill, extending this performance into his social life is simply a step too far, one that requires a sort of existential betrayal of everything that he describes as real and important in his life. In this way, Bill, like many that we spoke to, underline the sort of limits of this sort of class cultural assimilation. But significantly, this is not about others enforcing that limit. It's actually the result of his own reluctance to sort of embrace that type of identity mutation. Mark, in contrast, had no such existential issues. His career had proceeded at both a tremendous speed and with enviable smoothness. But what was interesting and unusual about Mark was his acknowledgement that, in many ways, this upward trajectory had been contingent on starting the race with a series of profound advantages. He says here, it's not like I think I'm rubbish. I mean, I've seen lots of peers with greater networks and privilege screw up because they just weren't good enough. But at the same time, it's mad to sort of pretend there's not been an incredibly strong following wind throughout my career. This idea of a following wind, a gust of privilege, gets to the heart of what our book is about. It neatly neatly captures, we think, the subtle, propulsive power provided by an advantaged class background, how it acts as an energy-saving device that allows some to get further with less effort, deftly shaping career trajectories, delineating what courses of action are available, what sort of support is available, and how one's merits are perceived by others. Equally, I think the metaphor also visualizes the experience of the upwardly mobile, who very often have the wind against them. It's not that such individuals can't move forward, just that Generally, it takes longer, happens less frequently, and often represents a markedly more labour-intensive, even emotionally exhausting experience. But thinking about privilege as a prevailing wind also has ramifications that extend beyond elite occupations. Our book is, of course, primarily about social mobility at the top of British society, but we're keen that our findings are not read simply as a further fetishisation of the top, or of social mobility writ large. Our class backgrounds do not only matter in relation to who has the top salaries or the most powerful jobs. 
Instead, we see our findings as illustrating one of the many ways in which privilege affects all sorts of life outcomes in all parts of the class structure. And in all of these domains, the issue is that when the following wind of privilege is misread as merit, the inequalities that result are legitimized. This leads those who have been fortunate to believe they've earned it on their own, and those who have been less fortunate to blame themselves. We hope that by shedding light on the ways in which merit is, at best, an insufficient explanation for career success at the top, we can raise wider questions about the legitimacy of an economic system that too often allocates profoundly unequal rewards based on the accident of social origin. Thank you. Well, thank you, um, Daniel and Sam. That's fantastic. Now on to Faiza for some comments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah. Great. It's hard to like, sum up my thoughts in five minutes. And I would say, as, a, as someone that runs an organization called Class, um, I'm not surprised by how many people are here today. Whenever we do work on race and class, because we often do those things together, um, probably partly because of who I am, but uh, we find so many people want to engage. And I think part of that is because it's not just academic. It's about our lives and our journeys and our parents' journeys. Um, and social mobility and that story of the American dream or the British dream, as Theresa May now says, you know, it's a very seductive narrative. Um, but of course, we know for many of us that it's not, it's not true. Um, and those of us that have made that journey, uh, you know, we know that it's, it's a really difficult and bumpy one. And, and, and that's why I want to say just thank you to both Sam and Daniel for writing this book. I have used your earlier work again and again and again because you finally gave me something that just allowed me to use the evidence. It's not like I'm going mad in, in these situations. Just listening to the Channel 4 thing there, for instance. I just worked on a documentary for Channel 4, which, honestly, I'm not a fan of the end product. Um, and, you know, the commissioner at Channel 4 was insanely posh and privileged. Um, the head of the production company was insanely posh and all male, white, posh and privileged. And then they hired a director of the show also insanely privileged, like, I mean, insanely posh, like caricature posh, all three of them. And I'm in this room and they're telling me about social mobility. I'm sure none of them ever, they never want to work with me again. I'm pretty sure about it. Um, and, you know, in the emotional work, there's a bit in the book um, called The Price of the Ticket. Um, and, you know, a lot of this just feels really personal when you just read that bit, the emotional work. I've been in an argument for the last four days with a friend of mine, and he is a friend of mine, although maybe not now. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he runs an organization that was set up, a scheme that was set up to get more voices on the left and get more people from working class backgrounds, more women, more people of color. Um, and it's a scheme that I've supported in lots of different ways. And then found recently that they have been giving this training to people from very privileged backgrounds and receiving a couple of text messages whereby um, something we've been asked to go on to talk about universal credit. And um, there's a long list of people that could go and do it. And who is, our, who is put forward to go and do that? The privileged white person that has no idea what it's like to live on the edge when there's some of us that have lived on benefits that know what that feels like. Um, so any, and, and it's always me that has to go, look, you cannot do that. That's not the point of this program. Um, and it's really frustrating to me that it's still, and I, I'm pretty old now, been doing this for 15 years, it's always me that has to point these things out, even on the progressive left. 
Um, and so the more we can do to raise awareness of this issue and what class prejudice and class privilege looks like, the better. Um, so ways in which you can be allies on this issue, if you're not from this background, is to speak up when you see it. There's no way when there was a whole list of other people that have experience growing up on benefits who are working class backgrounds, who are women and people of color, that that media slot was given to someone from so much privilege. Just, it just shouldn't be happening from the, from the progressive left, at least. Um, and I would complain about it if it was anywhere else as well. I want to talk a bit about um, the policy side um, and just focus a bit on that. Um, and I, you know, I... Like I say, I love this analysis, and I've already been using it loads. Um, the policy bit, which isn't written by you guys, um, which is really just focuses in on the workplace. Now, for me, this is much, much bigger than the workplace, and we have to be far more radical in our thinking. For me, social mobility and the narrative as it currently stands is incredibly toxic and something that we should move away from. I would say put it in the bin. I am so fed up of the way in which it individualizes the problem and is essentially a con. Um, and why do I think that? Um, when I was four or five years old, um, my mum, uh, she came coming into the room, and, and my dad was a car mechanic. The five of us lived in a two-bedroom place. It was, it, well, actually, no, it wasn't us. Um, and uh, my mum came into the room, and she just looked really excited. She was Pakistani. She didn't hear Urdu wasn't great. And she said to me, Pfizer, one day you're going to go to the best university in the world. And I remember being really little and being like, what? And she said, yeah, you're going to go to Oxford University one day. Now, and lo and behold, like 15 years later, I did. Um, and, you can, and many people will take that story and say, oh, look, there you go. It's the dream and, you know, your hard work and your mum's aspirations. And she was, of course, she was aspirational for me. I mean, she called me Pfizer Shaheen. Pfizer means a bird that flies high, and Shaheen... I know, Pfizer means I'm a winner, and Shaheen means a bird that flies high. <laughs> I mean, she gave me those names. Shaheen isn't my original surname. Um, and so, you know, yeah, there was, there was certainly an obsession there, and that's not, that's not unusual for an immigrant family. Um, but that leaves out the whole story of luck that I was born in England and not Pakistan, that inspirational teachers that told me I could do it. The state, the support of the state was so fundamental to my journey. The times that my dad left and my mum had to go on benefits. Fundamental to why I'm here today. And yet that is often taken from the stories of social mobility because we individualize it. We make it like, you're a hero. I'm not a hero. I was given infrastructure for my dreams. And that is what we need to give to everyone else. Um, and it's a con. Like, I think the whole narrative is a con. Why is it a con? It's a con because... More equal countries have higher levels of social mobility. Why aren't we just focusing on lowering income and wealth inequalities instead? Right? We're saying to people that you should, that for, in order for you to be a working class person that you can be proud of, that you should climb that ladder, even though the rungs are really far apart. That is our ultimate litmus test of society. People from the bottom can make it to the top, even though the rungs of that ladder are growing further and further apart. Maybe we should focus on the rungs in that ladder instead. Um, I think also it's a con because no one moves down, really, do they? I mean, some, that's kind of what that graph showed. If you're born rich, you kind of can stay there. Um, and that's partly because we know that the middle class and the upper class, they game the system. They make the system work for them. Of course they do. Um, and, and we forget that in our story of social mobility. We just focus on those at the bottom and say, you should work harder. It's like a whip to the poorest kids. You should just work harder. Why have I had to work twice as hard, if not more, my whole life? And why do I have to keep doing it? 
I don't want to have to say that to other kids from working class backgrounds. Um, it's a con also because of the way the labor market looks now. Um, so I'm an economist by training. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about the social mobility story is that it seems to assume that there's room for everyone to get to the top. Um, the time in which there was a high level of social mobility was a time in which there was a massive expansion of jobs in the middle and at the top. That isn't happening now. In fact, we see a, a, a fewer jobs in the middle. We have a growth at the bottom and a growth at the top. So how does that, I mean, it's like square peg round, I mean, that doesn't work. That doesn't come together. It's, it's a con. It's a lie. Um, and also because we're just not dealing with the fact about, we're not dealing with wealth. I mean, wealth begets wealth. If your parents owned your house, owned a house that can give you that money to get a house, that is the ultimate thing that sets you up. Um, I know I don't have long to speak, but I mean, so for me, what do we need to do instead of this? obsession with social mobility um, and these small tweaks here and there, whether it be transparency. I'm not to say we shouldn't do those things, but I mean, it's, it's an it's a incremental change given the scale of the change that we need. Um, so it's a combination of things. We need to invest back in, one, we need to stop austerity. I'm fed up of hearing politicians on the one hand say they support social mobility, on the other hand, um, vote for cuts to public services that are so fundamental to people moving up. Moving up. Um, uh, universal basic services, we need to go back to investing in housing, in schools, um, further education. We shouldn't make it such that the only way you make it is if you go to Oxford and you don't sound like what, how, the place you came from anymore. Um, that just, you know, that has to go. The narrative needs to change. Um, and universal basic services, so that's things like free Wi-Fi, cheaper energy, you know, a, a way in which to deal with some of the other challenges we face as well in, ter in terms of climate change. Um, like I say, we need a new narrative. We need to talk about um, what success looks like in a very different way. We need to give room to people with different skills because not everyone is academic. Um, and we need to do something about power and representation. I am so fed up of being um, the only person in the room, the only person on a panel, not completely true today, but, you know, the only woman, person of color, the only... Um, person from a working class background. I mean, like just can't, we need more representation desperately. And in the, we cannot wait for it to happen because we keep waiting for it to happen. It ain't going to happen. We just need to force it to happen. This is what we've learned from all women's shortlists in the Labour Party. That's the only way. That's the only way. Um, and we need to do something about power in every place, so including trade unions. And, you know, we have to remember that a time when working class did have more of a voice and have more power and did get paid properly was at a time in which there was more organizing. They had solidarity. You had people coming together and saying, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take you taking a big share of the pie when we're doing all the work. Um, so when we, thought, when we think about what we want to do moving forward on the basis of the injustice of the types of class inequalities we see right now, we have to think big. Thank you. Louise. Okay, thank you. Thanks, if you everyone. can move near the, move yeah. the microphone. Thank can you. you hear me now? Move that round. Yep. Um, thanks for having me here today. Um, start by saying how much I enjoyed uh, Sam and Daniel's book, which is truly excellent. As Sam has already pointed out, um, my research covers uh, many similar themes um, that Sam and Daniel address in their book. I do tend to focus more on access to elite occupations rather than career progression. So it is obviously fantastic that we have this excellent evidence base to help us understand and recognize these inequalities and the existence and the um, workings of the class ceiling. 
Um, in addition to looking at barriers to access, I tend to conduct research looking at the diversity and inclusion agenda itself within organisations, and I look at um, its successes, and I look more often, um, I'm afraid, at its many failures. I'm just going to kind of narrow the focus to notwithstanding those <laughs> completely important points about the agenda as a whole, but I'm just going to narrow the focus to look at what organisations are doing and also what they're not doing. Um, so there has been much more attention to addressing um, the issue um, at the point of access compared to looking at class barriers in relation to career progression. That's very slowly starting to change, um, and I know that Sam and Daniel, uh, with Nick Miller of the Bridge Group, provide some great pra practical suggestions in their book in terms of what organisations can do in response. I'd like to be here and be really optimistic about the prospects for change in relation to the glass, glass ceiling within organisations, um, but I'm really struggling to be optimistic at the moment. Um, Firstly, or one of the kind of first issues um, with organisations with respect to diversity and inclusion agenda is that they increasingly, as we probably all know, rely on the business case um, to drive change. And we know that the business case is extremely problematic in driving change in any aspect of diversity, whether it's gender, class or ethnicity. Um, for a number of reasons, not least, it's incredibly contingent and there is often a much stronger business case in favour of the status quo, even if people don't actually discuss that explicitly um, as much. And the business case is particularly contingent in times of crisis. And I think, um, it's my pessimism again, it's fair to say that the UK is probably entering a period of crisis now, which might make um, issues around diversity and inclusion more contingent than ever. We saw after the financial crisis that many of these issues simply dropped off the organisational agenda altogether. So I don't think we can feel too hopeful about that at the moment. Um, there's also this issue with merit, which obviously Sam and Daniel have discussed in depth. It's interesting and frustrating because it feels as though, or I feel as though we've been talking about issues around merit and its misrecognition for years, again with respect to gender, but as well as ethnicity and class and those intersections too. In my view, we are absolutely miles away from a truly meaningful conversation within organisations and elsewhere about, um, which really disrupts that term and seeks to understand its effects. I don't think we can get much further on this um, or do much better um, for a long time, but I think we have to have a number of other things that would happen first. I'm not sure that we can have a sophisticated discussion about merit until more organisational leaders and their followers too acknowledge um, that when we're talking about diversity, we are always talking about politics and we're always talking about power. Now, that might seem really obvious to people in the room, but in my experience, and I should say I work predominantly with kind of large professional service firms, but not only, organisations tend to reflect a view that a lack of diversity, it's a kind of human capitalist view, if you like, a lack of diversity or the presence of inequality is irrational, and if only we can find the right systems and processes, the problem will be solved and will be addressed. And that's certainly the perspective of mainstream research. We hear it quite a lot. And it, and it absolutely hasn't happened for all sorts of reasons. Going back to the business case, um, within many occupations, exclusion is experienced as entirely rational. And for the people who have privilege, it may not, as we know, always be in their interests that the problem of the class ceiling is in fact solved. So that kind of thing contributes to lots of contradictions in the diversity agenda, which can be quite paralyzing, I think, as well. When we add in social mobility into the mix, I think that there's additional complexity. I would add that I think many of us, and I include myself in this, inhabit significant hypocrisies in our own stance on social mobility, 
even as we're advocating for it with all the caveats that you just mentioned, it's a problematic agenda. So, for example, we can advocate in favour of upward social mobility, but be damn sure that we don't want our kids to suffer from downward social mobility, and we'll do everything in our power to stop that from happening. And I think we see a lot of that out there, and it's a difficult one to tackle. But I also think that, or I wonder whether we need to learn to be a little less polite when, when discussing, for example, the challenge of the class ceiling and diversity more generally in organisations, one of the impacts of the diversity and inclusion agenda is that organisations and people within organisations have tended to adopt the language of no-fault discrimination. So that's particularly evidence, for example, in the popularity of unconscious bias training. So unconscious bias training has become the, the centre point of many organisations' approach to diversity. It's completely useless. There's no evidence that it has any meaningful effect on um, improving outcomes for people. And it's also part of this very gentle approach where we're all guilty of discrimination, but at the same time, nobody should feel bad because actually none of us are. It's not our fault. Okay. Equally, I have interviewed literally hundreds of students from less privileged backgrounds who are seeking to access the professions and almost universally, as they access internships and mentoring and that kind of thing, they are sold an incredibly individualistic narrative by current managers and mentors, for example, where they are persistently told that talent and hard work alone will facilitate their success. And the psychological cost, when that turns out to be not quite the case, can be quite significant. So there's much more I can say about that. The point that I'm trying to make just today is the, these are highly political narratives, but they're rarely acknowledged as such within organisations or even really discussed. And that contributes as one contribution to the failures of voluntary diversity agendas. It implies a much greater role for government to get involved with forcing change, not just driving it, but actually forcing it to make there be a real business case if you do not diversify and become more inclusive. And when I say we should just, just going to finish, we could be perhaps less polite. I, I don't mean that we should lose the capacity for reasoned debate, but I think that Times op-ed shows how kind of easy it is to talk in kind of quite superficial terms around issues around um, merit. So I do think we need to continue to speak up about the reality of what it means to lack privilege in organisations and acknowledge the politics involved, even when it's really, really uncomfortable for everybody involved. And if it often is. It's sort of speaking truth to power, isn't it, I think, possibly. So I'm going to finish by saying that I'm really glad that uh, Sam and Daniel's book is out there to help get some of these ideas across. Thank you. Thanks, Louise. So I'm, I'm just going to spend two minutes talking about my perceptions as a sociologist on, on this book, because I really want to make the point that this is cutting-edge sociology, which is having a major impact on thinking about how we understand social mobility. And I want to bring that out in a couple of ways, but then also pose a couple of questions back, back to you. Um, so so one, of the, one of the things I've been aware of um, as an academic sociologist for three decades now is how sociology is in many ways the first discipline to really put its finger on the issue of social mobility, which is done for 50, 60, 70 years, and really, really important work on social mobility, but somehow got fixated upon one way of measuring it, which was movements between social classes defined by a particular occupational schema. So what counts as mobility was, you know, was your mother you know, working in a shop and you were working in a bank? Very, very stark occupational shifts. Now, that, that work was really, really important, but it was incredibly broad, and it did not give you the kind of granular attention to mobility at the extremes 
And in particular, it didn't give you a handle on economic mobility, how much money you earned. That was what economists did, not sociologists. And I think, for me, the breakthrough of this study is really it's combining sociology with also issues from economics. It's looking at how much you earn, not just your job, but how much you're actually earning. And it's then disaggregating that back into a whole series of factors. So we're really able to look inside the engine room of the factors preventing mobility, possibly encouraging it and allowing us to really, to really show sociology at its best. Also, uh, I don't think Daniel Sam mentioned this, but does, I do want to just acknowledge it does draw upon the influence of Pierre Bourdieu, very eminent sociologist. And if you read the book, I think chapter nine explains why Pierre Bourdieu is really important. One reason he's important, and it came out very much in the talk, was thinking about culture. So social mobility is not just about how much money you've been born with, how much your privileges are in terms of your material resources. It's about your perceptions, your identities, your values. And uh, we, we, we need to find a language, and a policy language too, for recognising those sorts of cultural symbolic forces. And I think it's really um, incredibly valuable that you've done that, and also you've done it by bringing in in-depth interviews and qualitative material as well as survey research. So in terms of it being a mixed method survey, it is really path-breaking because you find high-quality survey analysis alongside vignettes and ethnographic statements. So it's an incredibly easy book to read, even whilst it's very you know, scientific by all the criteria. A couple of questions um, to throw back at you. One of them is, because the book is called The Class Ceiling, but you might argue that really you're pointing... The fact that you're pointing to are much more specific than class. And so, for instance, you show that actually there's quite there's different processes at work in different elite occupations. So the American sociologists, uh, Kim Whedon and Dave Whiskey, have asked, argued that microclasses, you don't need concepts of big working classes or middle classes because you can really isolate very particular effects. So we know, for instance, that doctors are incredibly self-recruiting and still classes today. So in that case, is it helpful to say they're part of a professional middle class why don't you just talk about doctors or whatever? So in a way, you know, you've, you've, you're using this class ceiling term, but are you really sort of using it as a, as a holding area, which you could actually decompose into much more exact ways of analysis? And the second issue is actually about the issue of culture, which is obviously a strength of the book. But I just want to, you know, one of the challenges which actually the economists have thrown out to sociologists recently is to say, well, yes, culture is important. And I'm thinking about the way in which uh, Thomas Piketty has responded to Pierre Bourdieu. Culture is important, but what's happening in the world today is actually, such is the growth of economic inequality, that there's actually the economic things which are driving stuff these days. So 40, 50 years ago, perhaps cultural capital was more important relative to economic capital, but now it's actually the economic factors which are paramount. So when you, and it's interesting, some of the things you talked about are economic. The bank of mum and dad is very economic. Paying for in, in internships is very economic. Some of the things are more cultural and more symbolic. I was kind of wondered if you want to kind of reflect upon the relative importance of those. Recognising, too, that people often have more to say about the cultural things. You know what I mean? They can, you can have a story about feeling snubbed at a party or not, not, you know, not feeling you've pitted at the meeting. But is that actually what's driving it? So, um, you know, you, your work is fantastically important in breaking down boundaries, but actually are there still issues which need to be thought about more? Okay. So I think it's now just going to half past seven. If, we, if you have five minutes to respond, and then we'll throw it out for yeah. questions from the floor. Yeah. So I think I'll take the first one, you take the second one? Yeah. Okay. Um, so thanks, Mike. Um, 
I think that question of is it, you know, how should we measure class, I alluded to this at the beginning. I could spend hours talking about it and I won't. Um, but I think, you know, I don't think what's going on is really only what we and all would call microclass reproduction. Um, it's also true that doctors' kids have the, some of the highest chances of ending up anywhere in the top jobs um, compared to all other um, small occupations. So it's not just small, you know, particular occupations, although that's one place where there's variation. I think, you know, for me, if you're going to, you know, if I were going to measure class background accurately, I would want to know um, about the job, about the education, about the income, and about the sort of cultural resources that the parent has. Um, so I often tell, uh, you know, I've, I've got a story in the book which is the simple story about my class background, um, which is my mom was a secretary. She was a single parent for most of when I was growing up. Um, we rented a house. Um, we were what you might call lower middle class. Uh, I think she earned less, you know, substantially less than the median household income. That's one story, and it's a true story. And if you just measure class one thing at a time, occupation or income, um, she, she hadn't finished college. You know, I'm from a working class background. Um, but she also went to seven out of eight semesters at an elite private college um, and dropped out because she wanted to help make the revolution. Um, and so, you know, she had a lot of what you might call a certain kind of academic capital, right? And I was raised in a household um, that in many ways looked much more in terms of cultural resources like many households from middle class backgrounds. Um, and so if you really want to understand my class background or anybody's class background, I think any one measure is usually not enough. They tend to go together. Most people's moms aren't communists who are trying to make the revolution, um, especially in the 80s in the U.S., um, right? But, like, you know. Um, so, yeah, so, but, so they tend to go together, right? Most people who have fairly low incomes also have jobs you might call working class and also have less, um, you know, didn't graduate from college. But they don't always go together. And so good, good, a good understanding of class position, I think, as an origin or as a destination has to do with all of our resources. Um, and you can't always do all of those measures in any given survey, in any given study. Sometimes you have to simplify um, for the sake of writing a book um, or doing an analysis. But if you really want to get at class, you need all of those things. And I think if you want to do those well, you also have to take into account things like, you know, we were a white family. That affected the ways that teachers perceived me and the, and the opportunities that I likely had, right? Um, you have to take into account all of those kinds of things to really get at what privilege means, what social position means. Um, yeah, I think... Um I mean, just to piggyback on what Daniel was saying there, I think we, we tried really hard in the book, actually, to try in the interviews to really take this idea of class origin uh, quite seriously and interrogate, you know, normally it was about half an hour <laughs> of the interviews were taken up with, like, really digging into um, the degree of sort of economic... Uh, advantage that came through in various ways from your from your background, as well as really trying to get underneath this idea of how the role of culture in the way that you've been socialised. And I think you do see um, commonalities that aren't just occupationally specific. Um, you know, it's interesting thinking about this idea of, you know, even in, in the television commissioning room, this sort of power of high culture. You know, people f brought up in backgrounds that represented various different professions, you often saw um, commonalities in the way in which they had, their sort of cultural upbringing had been scaffolded. Um, and I think that's why in some ways that, that those notions of 
rather larger class origin categories are useful. Um, I think the question about economic capital and its increasing importance, I think, comes out quite strongly. Um, in a way, we sort of um, it, that chapter might seem like sort of the most obvious chapter to have. But it, uh, what I was surprised about was really when you dig into the ways in which actually um, parental economic capital isn't just sort of facilitating fairly um, commonsensical things around um, rent and, um, you know, um, being able to do an internship. You know, particularly in some of these culture and creative industries, there's a sense in which it's, it's, it, it's sort of a form of insulation that um, is sort of, even if not actually realised, has quite a big imp- sort of um, role in how you feel about what you can do. Um, and, you know, that came through in all sorts of ways around, you know, whether you feel particularly you could take risks, I think, in terms of your career, um, and then how that really powerfully affected um, the sort of early decision-making that people had made in their careers. And so I think, I think you're absolutely right, particularly in this city when, you know, living costs have become so absolutely outrageous. Um, I think it's Im- important to recognise that perhaps that economic capital has, you know, become more and more powerful in the last few years. Um, perhaps we'll see that change in, uh, in, in the post-Brexit era. Maybe London will lose that, and then maybe that will be something that actually will be fairly positive that will come out of, of this. But Do you want to apply to Pfizer or Louise, or at the end? Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they, I, think, I think we sort of okay. broadly agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have over 20 minutes for um, questions. Let's take the batches of three to try and economise. Who would like to kick off... Um, they're very shy. It's unusual. Okay, there's one at the front here. The microphone. Thanks. Hello. Um, hi. Uh, thanks very much for the talk. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, some high-profile commentators have kind of said that um, austerity has had no or little impact on social mobility or that the data isn't there. Um, do you think that's true? And also, do you, what bearing has kind of the austerity era had on the higher professions that you kind of examined? Do you think they've become more entrenched and closed off? Thanks. Okay, and there's one here, the black hair, the glasses. Yep. Yep. Scarf. So this is partly a statement, a very quick one, and a question. Um, so I grew up in the north of England. Neither of my parents had university degrees, and I, went, I lived in one of the most deprived areas of the country. And as I've kind of, I guess I'm an example of social mobility in the same way that Pfizer is, that I've, tri- I've worked in advisory and finance, and I've been able to come to, quote-unquote, elite institutions. And one of the things that I think is really frustrating is this reluctance to frame it as part of institutional racism as well. So it's things like um, when I used to work in advisory for one of the big four, it's a partner telling me that I can't speak in a certain way if I want to get ahead. It's things like um, an old boys network of on the first day of my job, four of them knew each other because they took a boating trip in the Caribbean. Um, (laughs) And I think, I guess my statement is that 
as a country, we have a reluctance to speak about racism. Um, and it's institutionalized in the sense that you effectively, most black children from a young age learn to code switch. You have to whitewash your language to sound a certain way in order to be accepted in certain spaces. And I think that we can't advance this um, conversation without noting kind of very institutional racist foundations of, of this country. Um, it would be great if you could uh, unpick a bit the analysis you're talking about at the end about London particularly. I wonder if particularly speaking to people in higher up in professions who are presumably roughly in their 40s, the advantage you were talking about of having access to London accommodation hadn't probably kicked in for them. But I feel like for my generation, probably predominantly represented here, aged between about 25 and 35, I cannot think of a greater advantage than having access to free accommodation within an hour commute of central London. Yeah. Okay, some responses. I think Faisal Louise may want to say those things too. But yeah, um, you, yeah. Uh, yeah, just quickly on austerity. Of course, right. So since 2010 till now, it doesn't. It takes time for that for that to feed through. What we do know is that has undermined a lot of early intervention programs, early years programs, whether it be Sure Start, whether it be youth centres. 91% um, of schools have seen cuts, number of kids in classes. We know that those things don't result in higher levels of social mobility. So I, you know, we can expect that to that, for that to free through. I think that's the, the general sense. Um, just really quickly on institutional racism, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, you might have noticed today when I get passionate, I get more East London. And literally, I've had Sky News presenters. I, I get, like, constant hassle about not saying my T's on Twitter. I've had Sky News presenters re retweet people making fun of me um, as if that's okay. It's discrimination. It's prejudice. Um, and those things are, do often combine because the, the working class is multi-ethnic. Um, and you're absolutely right to point that out, and we need, to, we need to call it out, and we need to call it out as prejudice. We need to, you know, people need to feel uncomfortable about it. Unfortunately, we do live in a world where it seems like it's worse to be called a racist than to actually be a racist. It's a very, it's a very difficult conversation to have, um, but, you know, that doesn't mean we go quiet. I'm not willing to be polite about it yet. Um, see how that goes in a few years when I'm a politician. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just to say, just, I was just thinking about the narratives around, um, I know it's not individualised um, social capital, but if we think about what's happened um, with anti-immigration sentiment, social mobility, and then the link towards economic inequality, I think, you know, in a way... Um, anti-immigration social mobility narrative have been, a, been used as a way to distract us or divide us away from doing something about the economy. That said, you can't just do something about the economy. And I say this as an economist. Prejudice exists. You can go to countries where they'll be very equal, but there will still be racism, there will still be um, classism, there will still be sexism, and, and so those things have to go hand in hand. Yeah, okay, I'll just I'll very quickly, I couldn't agree more, and perhaps in the way that I expressed it, maybe I was being polite about how rubbish these policies are, because it's exactly what I was saying, that there is institutional racism, and most diversity and inclusion policy completely sugarcoats what that is, so it's all about this idea of unconscious bias. It's not unconscious, it's often conscious, and it's completely deliberate, and that's really problematic. We should call it out as what it is, which is discrimination, um, and, and, and we should be much clearer about that. But it's bizarre, because I spend a lot of time doing this kind of thing, but to audiences in the city, 
Um, and it's a very different kind of atmosphere, as you can imagine. <laughs> and one of the things that um, comes up a lot, which I find totally extraordinary, well, two things. First, while I do my research in the city, I've never seen a more over backlash against the diversity agenda that people feel more emboldened to say that there are no opportunities left for white middle-class men. And they will say that to me as I'm doing research on diversity and inclusion. But the second thing that I find extraordinary about that is people will say, they'll, they'll have a question where they say, how can we discuss these issues so that white middle-class men don't feel threatened? And I'm always like, well, why, do, why do we need to? But that's the kind of thing I need that I completely agree. It's there, it's evident, but it's not discussed and it absolutely needs to be. Do you want to say something? Yeah. I, think, I think they cover I, I completely agree yeah. that um, austerity is probably part of the problem and that you, know, you, you can't think well about class in isolation. You have to think about the ways that it interacts with gender, with race, with disability, with lots of other forms of inequality. And it's really hard to write a, a, a book that deals with every axis of inequality equally. Um, so our book focuses on class inequality, but tries to attend as much as we can to the ways in which that interacts with other forms of inequality. I, you, know, you all can judge how well we've done that, but that, that's been the attempt to, to, um, to focus on the, the things that are classed. And then I think we can think about you know, which of the dynamics we're talking about work very similarly in terms of gender or in terms of race or in terms of other kinds of inequality, which of the dynamics we're talking about are really, you know, work in really different ways. Um, and I think that's, that's important work. And there's other people who've done really great work on specifically on um, institutionalized racism and elite spaces um, in the UK and the US. Well, the um, number of CVs you have to send for your name sounds a bit different. You have to think yeah. about this alongside all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, all, yeah, all, all of that is, is worth thinking about. Just, just very quickly, yeah. I mean, I think, like, the, the issue... I mean, both Pfizer and the question up there mentioned this idea around sort of language and accent which is just so powerful, and I think it's, it's trying to come back to this idea that we were sort of discussing there about how things that, I think, when you really aggregate them out, are really quite arbitrary, um, and yet the meaning attached to them and the way in which they're misread routinely in workplace settings as legitimate markers of talent, of being the right sort of person is really powerful and I think it's, it's trying somehow in those settings to make people realise or in a way we were talking before about sort of forcing them to justify that those things are somehow correlated. Um, you know, why do you need to have to change the way you speak? Like, justify to me why I need to speak like you. Why is that a sign I'm more intelligent or I'm more able or I'm going to perform this work better? And I think that that's sort of you know, really getting to that arbitrary nature and challenging it is key. Thank you. Okay, we've got some time for it. Yep, with the white hair there. <laughs> 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 sure Mike can say something. So, <laughs> Hello. So I've waited 40 years, guys, I've waited 40 years to hear this. And I'm, I want you to just shout it, and anybody shout it from the rooftops, because I come from Liverpool. I grew up in a working-class council estate. I got into newspapers when I was 18. I became a reporter on the Liverpool Echo. After three years with trainees from Oxbridge that I was working with who weren't from Liverpool, I realised I didn't speak their language, but they were the ones who got the best stories. 
So I realised I was going to have to go to university, even though I was a bloody great reporter. You know, <laughs> even at 17, 18, 19, I was a great reporter. So I ended up going to university at 22 as a reporter, and then getting, I did an English degree at UCL, and getting all that language that they talk, and learning all about that stuff that they show off with, and then did it myself. And within four years, I was at London Weekend Television, as the only bloody scouser in the entire building, <laughs> apart from John Burt, who was the controller of factual programs, who became my mentor. And he became my mentor because I played football with him every Friday afternoon because I was bloody good at football because I'm from <laughs> And that is how I managed to be intelligent for 34 years. I know those people at Channel 4. I've spent hours with them. And being frank with you, I could not... If I was in Liverpool today, from the same background... I could not break through into television like I did. And the biggest one is what this gentleman said over here, which is the economic circumstances where the bulk of media is, which is London, uh, is so controlling at holding people back. But the other thing I just want to say is the subtlety of what you've identified is, is just extraordinary. It's like a cult. If you're in the cult, if you're in the cult, you know you're in the cult. If you're outside the cult, you know you're outside the cult, but you don't know how to get inside it. <laughs> and you've identified something that I've had massive arguments about this for years in television, really. And, you know, I've won Emmys, I've won BAFTAs, I'm fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've, been a commissioning editor, I've been a commissioning editor twice, and it lasted less than a year. And I think you can guess why. <laughs> because I've got a big gob, and I tell it how it is. And the irony is that television is about expressing reality to people, mostly in lower middle class, middle class households, who certainly, before we had Netflix and all the rest of it, the, the bulk of the audience was in the north and in council estates watching it. And who was I with in 1987 having arguments with about what should be on the telly? Peter Mandelson, you know, guys that went to Eton, guys that went to Oxbridge, they never watched telly when they were kids. I mean, to me, the, the paradox of that in a business that's about accessing audiences has just killed me for years. And thank God for Netflix, and thank God that you guys have done this. And please come to the Edinburgh TV Festival in August and do a thing on this, because it, you'll get a massive row going on there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Hi guys, thank, thanks for the, the great speech. Um, I wanted to get the panel's view on the, on the role of unions um, going forward. Uh, my experiences, my personal experiences, echo the experiences of the lady back there working in the Big Four. I was working in the Big Four 15 years. And my experience of unions goes back to my parents when they used to go on strike in, in the hoisery factories of Leicester. And, and, and that was very effective. And arguably the demise of unions over the past few decades has exacerbated the problems that you've, you've talked about. Um, do you think there's a role of unions now and how they could be made, res how could they be, uh, made resurgent, not just on the traditional industries, but in the professional industries where it's also arguably required? Hi, I, I just want to thank all of you for your talks as well. I think you've all done an amazing job. I've learned a lot about this topic. Um, my, my question specifically is about um, what can companies do or what would you like to see companies do more to encourage people from working class backgrounds to end up in elite destinations? I know you mentioned unconscious bias trainings aren't the most, uh, like, aren't the best solution. So I'm wondering if you have any recommendations on that. Okay. Who would like to kick off some responses? 
I think one thing we had to, to that last question, I mean, the answer to you, I'm the child of an organizer, right? Yeah, yay unions. Um, but to that question, I think one of the things that we hope to see is just, you know, I mean, I agree with, with Faiza and uh, that the biggest issue is probably broad inequality, right? But on the smaller scale, I think, you know, the more people who make evaluative decisions about other people and who help people get ahead in their professions can, can try to look at what do you mean by merit? What, you know, who are you drawn to to help out, right? And if you're drawn to people who are like you, as many of us are, um, that's not unconscious bias, right? That's not like, oops, I didn't notice, Right, um, right. That's you know that's a powerful force, and that's who you end up helping, and you end up leaving behind the people who don't look like you, who don't can't talk about the same things, can't work about the you know etc. And one of our stories that we didn't tell in the talk is, but is the architecture firm where the head of the one of the heads of the firm is from a working class background, and he's mentored and brought along a working class young architect trainee um, who uh, you know who he feels an affinity for. Um, but that's allowed um, working class people to do sort of equally well in that firm as they as privileged origin people. So it's not that it's sort of a natural or necessary thing that um, people um, that only privileged origin people can get ahead in all professions, right? Um, or that only white people are any of that. Um, it takes, I think, one thing it takes is having a broader set of people at the top in the first place. That's hard. Um, and another is is really thinking about how do you judge merit. <laughs> Right? And, and realizing the ways in which things that we sort of have a gut feeling about that are good are often not about things that are actually um, what we want to be rewarding. Um, I mean, I just, I'm not sure if it's necessarily, I'm not sure who, who, who this would fall um, for in terms, of, in terms of who would push for this. It could be unions, it could be professional associations. But I think, you know, we're talking about this issue of sponsorship. And I think it's very hard to stop people from making connections at work, and it's very difficult to stop them from those connections being based on this sort of organic cultural affinity. What you can stop, or what you can certainly curtail, is the ability of people in senior positions to do that sort of fast-tracking, um, for there to be this culture, as I think there is in, at the top of a lot of types of organisations, including the sort of big four, where those in senior positions have a, a huge amount of autonomy to, to sort of operate beneath formal mechanisms in relation to how people have progressed. And I think it, that's in one of the ways in which, you know, sort of just formalising processes, um, it may not be the most sexy sort of policy tool, but actually it, I think it's quite, it, it can be quite powerful in, in stopping these sorts of trajectories, you know, because as, as we sort of mentioned, it's not necessarily that it's always going to be privileged people that are, you know, that are sponsoring in their own image. As we say in the architecture firm, it's those from working class backgrounds doing it. It's not like that it's, it's it, it, everyone is prone to it, but I think the question is it, when that's taking place, there's always a sense in which um, it's not necessarily um, being rewarded in a transparent, open way based on people's capacities at work. So I don't know if that's necessarily the role. Maybe um, others have some ideas. Just also, very quickly, I, we didn't really mention that question about, about London, but I think that comes out so clearly um, from the younger generations, particularly in the culture and creative industries, that, you know, it, when these industries are so, um, so focused around London... 
Um, and when the sorts of labour market opportunities that they offer are so uncertain, so short term, um, you know, that, as you say, it means that the advantages of being able to access housing in this city just become such an incredible advantage. Um, and it's interesting, it's a shame that Kelly's not here because I think Channel 4 um, are, you know, moving in that direction and, and the move to Leeds, I think, will undoubtedly help in that regard. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, just on the London thing, I think definitely for me, because I could stay at my, my parents' house for virtually free, like, that did help. And I think so that's why you see these, what they call social mobility hotspots at working class people. If you're born, it happens to be born in London and can stay with your parents and you're much more likely to, to overcome some of these issues of class, class prejudice and class barriers. Um, can I say to our working class hero, um, BAFTA winning, um, can you try and get people to make more TV that give us positive role models about working class people that help change a narrative? <laughs> I know, I know, but no, it can't be just you. I know, it's so frustrating. And then, absolutely, I agree with Netflix. You know, we were just talking about this before we came down. How, you know, in a way, BBC, Channel Four, etc., are going to be forced to move because all of these incredibly creative people are going to these new platforms, um, and they're losing out, and they look old and stale because they don't represent society. Yeah, I mean. You know, and just to say how important this is, my husband's an actor, he's working class background, um, Turkish origin, and because he's got a, he looks Middle Eastern, uh, literally in the 10 years we've been together, I think he's had maybe like two scripts where they, they show Middle Eastern looking people positively out of like hundreds, hundreds of scripts that are just like, you're a kebab man and drug dealer, you're a, I mean, it's just outrageous, and that has to change because that is what people perceive. Um, as working class communities and working class communities of colour. No, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, just really quickly, just because I know this is our last bit, um, to those in the room, you've hopefully heard from our working class hero over there, <laughs> who are from these backgrounds, who feel this imposter syndrome. I mean, I, not long ago, I woke up thinking, oh, I haven't really got a PhD, I made it up. <laughs> it's insane, the level of imposter syndrome, even after all of this time, and how you have to keep telling yourself that you're actually good at this. Um, and, and just to say that coming from these backgrounds, even though it can make you feel inferior at times, means that you have more insight, and you are a natural-born fighter. Like, I definitely think it's... It's helped me. Um, and, and, you know, make sure you've got people around you to encourage you in those moments when you feel like crap. Just make sure you have other people there to support. Thanks. Please. We've got time. Shall I do Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Shall I very briefly? Did you ask um, how organisations can encourage people to access them if they come from less privileged backgrounds?
Yeah, so organisations, the kind of professions that I look at, are, are making changes, particularly large kind of lawyers and investment banks, well, investment banks less actually, lawyers, accountancies. They are making changes to their recruitment and selection procedures. They're, they're recognising that um, they entrench systematic disadvantages in those systems and processes, and they are making some changes to those systems and processes. So they're recruiting sometimes. They say they are from a wider set of university. They're not using academic credentials to screen on entry they're introducing um, checks and balances within the actual interview process itself. So there are changes being made, and we are st starting, I think, in some organisations to see some level of widening participation, but it's early days. It's not clear whether those people will find it as easy to progress their career. And I think one of the bigger questions around here is not just how, because we have quite a, a lot of information in diversity as to how you diversify, but the big question that I keep going back to is how we can make organisations want to. And one of the things that we know within the organisational world is that the status of an, of an occupation isn't just to do with the nature of the work, it's to do with the status of the social identities of the people who typically do the work. And that can be an actual disincentive to, to diversify. So I think we have to have a much wider conversation about how different social identities convey authority and expertise and recognise that and break that down. So it's kind of how to do it, but also how to make them do it as well. OK, I think we should draw a halt now because it's past 8 o'clock. Well, before we give our final applause, just say a couple of things. One of them is that for those of you who haven't got a copy of the book yet and are desperate to, to get hold of it, it's on sale outside, £15. You have to use a card. So please, please, it is available out there. There is also, uh, I believe, some glasses of wine for anyone who wants to continue the debate over a, a glass of wine. And can I thank you all for coming tonight, and can I ask you all to give a great round of applause for our speakers? <laughs>